Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I am on fire with the Holy Spirit. Happy Pentecost. (laughs) Happy Pentecost. (laughs) Yes, happy birthday, church. Um, It's good to be with you. Excited for the show this week. Yeah, what's on tap, Zach? Uh, I'm actually um, engaging my favorite form of both food and beverage, which is Hint of Lime. It's the Mm. best Tostitos chip (laughs) and uh, the best way to consume water. So I've got a water with a hint of lime. Ah, very what nice. What do you have? I've got some lemon ginger herbal tea plus probiotics. Just keeping it healthy. I have to get on the road back to New York after this recording. So no cocktails this week. Yes. And you've got um, <laughs> a brand new brand new tires for your car. I'm, I do. Yep, I'm ready to big, hit the road. <laughs> big news. Big news. All right. And uh, who are we talking to this week? We are talking to our friend uh, Jordan Denari Duffner. She was on the show Back in 2018, we have her on again today to talk about her new book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Yeah, Jordan's work is so important for the Catholic Church because this is, uh, as she indicates, a, a calling of our faith. And this has certainly been a priority of Pope Francis um, to you know build bridges with the Muslim world. And there's a ton of Islamophobia in this country and in our church. And Jordan does a good job of exploring where that Islamophobia is happening and how Christians and Catholics can combat it. So stay tuned for that. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story comes from the state of Wisconsin in the Diocese of La Crosse, where Father James Altman, who is a priest who you might know um, from famous sound bites saying things like Catholic Democrats will face the fires of hell. People who put pandemic restrictions in place will face the fires of hell, um, downplaying the vaccine and a number of racist and sexist remarks. Um, Father James Altman, yep, that guy, has announced to his parish that his bishop has asked him to resign and also that he is going to fight that request. Yes, his bishop is William Callahan and Bishop Callahan announced back in September that he was going to attempt what he called a fraternal correction. So working behind the scenes with Father Altman to try to, you know, maybe rein in some of his more inflammatory remarks. Um, But he warned at the time that if this process didn't work, that canonical penalties like removing Father Altman as a pastor and even taking away his faculties to preach wouldn't be far behind. Yeah. And so here we are in May when that process has now been started. And why are we bringing you the story? Mainly because we need to talk about the problem of internet priests and the the problem that the internet poses for certain priests. And because here's the thing, Father Altman is clearly a problem, right? He is saying, um, he's spreading misinformation. He's saying hateful things that are 
in, in flat-out contradiction of Catholic teaching, all the while claiming the authority of the Catholic Church. Right. So he has he has his clerics on. He is saying these things as a Catholic priest. But instead of just delivering these ideas to his parish, which itself would be a problem, he's he's plugged into a media machine that amplifies his message to millions of people, li- like literally millions. Uh, some of his most popular videos on YouTube have racked up over a million views. That's right. And You know, in the Catholic Church, things work really slow. Um, The internet spreads information really fast. And especially like this process of canonical penalties, that's especially slow, right? Like priests need to be obedient to their bishop, but they do have a form of due process. It it can be appealed to the Vatican. They can work with canon lawyers to defend themselves, etc. And, you know, Bishop Callahan, as far as like I can tell, like is is following sort of the the approved process for for reining in stuff like this, right? He he started intervening back in September. But since then, Father Altman's continued to say insane and hateful things from the pulpit and podcast, video shows. And so I don't I don't necessarily know what the answer is, but I think this comes up again and again where um the church is slow to respond to modern forms of communication and technology, right? Um, you know, you could even say the Reformation was that was a part of the problem. We, we were shocked by the printing press and how fast ideas spread then. And I think this is going to be something that comes up again and again, unless the church really starts to grapple with this and get a handle on it. What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, another church and media story. Um, so, but kind of in the opposite direction. Pope Francis is worried that the Vatican is not reaching millions of people with its media operation. He recently paid a visit to the offices of Vatican Media. And, you know, while usually visits from the Pope are very exciting, uh, he's also the boss of these journalists. And so it might have been a little bit nerve wracking when Pope Francis came in asking some uh, hard questions. Yeah. He was basically asking them, okay, look, this is all really nice. Your offices are very pretty. But how many people act like read your news? How many people listen to your radio programs? And that's sharp for a number of reasons. But some extra context here. The Vatican is facing a pretty huge budget shortage and has cut salaries for both religious and lay staff. And Vatican Media is the Vatican's most expensive department. It costs, you know, $52 million a year, and it's it's 20% of the Vatican's entire budget. Right. And so that, that sounds really, you know, like a huge chunk of money. But it's also, you know, the work of communication is, is central to the Vatican's mission and evangelization. You know, you can't <laughs> spread the good news, the gospel, without getting the message out there through modern forms of communication. And not only that, you have to do it in every language that is spoken in the Catholic world, which I think is all of the languages. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this raises an interesting question. Is the Pope being too harsh? Um, you know, because there's a conflict here, I think, and people will say, like, it's not about the numbers. It's sort of about what you're doing and doing it well. And um, but on the other hand, should the Vatican's media department be concerned with should should they be publishing clickbait basically? Maybe they should consult uh some listicles. <laughs> some cat memes. Yes. <laughs> I personally would click on any picture of Pope Benedict with his his beloved cats. He's a big cat person, which <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah, free content, free content idea of Vatican Media. Um, but I, I do think this gets at a, a, another like crucial problem for the church in that we often just don't talk about how effective we are at our ministries. And 
at the end of the day, right? Like we do not live out our mission in a certain sense if if no one is receiving it or hearing it, right? Like we we do have a mandate to to preach the gospel, and I always point to the at the beginning of the church in the Acts of the Apostles, like they they mentioned that there were th- around three hundred baptized that day or something like that. There's like a number given, so the church has always been counting how effective it's been, and I think that's something not just in media but in ministry in general. You know, we don't look at we don't ask the question enough: Is what we're doing working? Right. So Pope Francis, we hear you. We we will try to reach as many people as possible through this podcast as well. Now stick around for our conversation with Jordan Denari Duffner. Joining us from the DC area is Jordan Denari Duffner. Jordan is an author and scholar of Muslim-Christian relations. Her latest book is Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Jordan. Thank you guys for having me. It's nice to be uh, back with you. It's good to have you back on. Um, I'm really excited for this book. Congratulations. Um, I know it's been a long time in the making, and it really is It really is a, a beautiful book and so important for Christians of all stripes to, to, to get a read on. I guess one place to start maybe, Islamophobia literally means fear of Islam, but you start your book by giving it a broader definition. So maybe could you tell us how you define Islamophobia? Yeah, so I define Islamophobia as prejudice and discrimination that targets people based on a perceived affiliation with Islam and Muslims. So what what does that mean? What am I trying to get at in that definition? Um, It's a few things. Um, First, it's the way people think and feel about Muslims, and then also the way that Muslims are treated. You know, it's I think the fear component is is really important, but there's also ideas and, you know, ideologies that kind of feed into the way that we uh, think about Muslims. Um, and then it's also the way that Muslims are treated. So I'm not just thinking about hate crimes or things like that, but also political rhetoric or political policies or other sorts of more institutionalized discrimination that Muslims are facing. Another thing that I'm trying to get at in this definition is that Islamophobia sometimes impacts people who are not Muslim. As you guys know from, from the book, there are many people who are not Muslim that often get caught in the crosshairs of this prejudice that is intended initially for Muslims. I give one story in the book about um, an Arab American Christian who lived in Oklahoma named Khalid Jabada, and he was killed by his neighbor who uh, came to his house, uh, made all of these offensive comments and derogatory slurs towards him and ultimately killed him. So Islamophobia is something that targets Muslims, but other people too. And then an, an, another component of this is that it's not just uh, overt bigotry. Uh, it's, it's also subtle. And I think we know this from uh, learning about other forms of discrimination, that um, bigotry or discriminatory ways of treating people can happen even when we're not intending for them. So those are some of the things that I'm trying to get at in this definition. Right. And one thing that stuck out to us was um, you say this is driven by more than ignorance. You know, sometimes just like a fear of the unknown can be what what drives our prejudice. But you say there's more to that because even even 
if people know exactly what Islam teaches, they can they can have these biases. Yeah, I think you know that was something that I have learned over the course of of my education and my work in this field. You know, when I first started out doing this work in Muslim Christian relations, I had this idea that if everyone got to know somebody who was Muslim, the problem of Islamophobia wouldn't be with us anymore. Um, but then I started. Uh, I, I actually went to the country of Jordan and uh, studied abroad there and realized that every, you know, all the Christians there knew people who were Muslim personally, but were still sometimes susceptible to some of the stereotypical ideas that we have about Muslims. Mm. And that was because they were consuming that in the media. And sometimes, you know, the media was dictating more what they thought about Islam and Muslims than their own actual relationships with people were. And, you know, I've also noticed that in the United States, you know, there are, and I, talk about so many examples of this in the book where you have people, uh, writers, bloggers, people in government who have an interest in scapegoating a group of people for either personal or political gain. Um, and so that's another aspect to this issue of Islamophobia. It's it's a kind of scapegoating where people sometimes have an interest in casting blame on on another group of people and, and benefiting in some other way off of that. So uh, unfortunately, that's part of the problem too. You know, in the past year, I, I think a number of white Americans have become more familiar with the concept of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that play out um, in, in a more systemic understanding of Islamophobia? Absolutely. I think a lot of the increased awareness that particularly white people have had around uh, systemic issues of anti-Black racism are also beginning to shape how people are coming to understand Islamophobia. You know, that was, again, something that I didn't initially think about when I first started studying this issue. I thought it was kind of on this level of interpersonal relationships and things like that. But yeah, there are lots of ways that our, our society furthers the marginalization of people who are Muslim uh, in ways that go beyond just our interpersonal interactions or feelings of bigotry that we might have. Can you describe what those systemic elements are? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about in the book um, are government policies that target Muslims. And a lot of these things we've seen in the wake of um, September 11th uh, in 2001, where Muslims have been on the receiving end of increased government surveillance. Uh, one of the stories that I tell in the book is about a, a young Muslim individual who ran a social service uh, organization in New York City and uh, a new member joined who he thought was just a he thought was just a, a new Muslim individual coming to help this charity group. And after a number of months, he found out that that this individual was an informant sent in by the New York Police Department, who had charged this person to you know watch the Muslim community, make sure nothing nothing wrong was going on. And in some cases, these programs have actually tried to stir up trouble in. Um, stir up trouble and actually like create situations where people can be prosecuted. Which is just a wild um, concept. I mean, if you can imagine yeah. <laughs> like that happening to a mainline Christian denomination, there would be like the Fortnights for religious freedom would be be year round, right? Like yes. that huge encroachment mm -hmm. upon religious practice and and, and and liberty is just wild for this group of people. Yeah. And, you know, and that gets to another thing that I'm trying to do in the book, which is to help people understand that Islamophobia really is um, a religious freedom issue. You know, we have the, like you said, the Fortnite for Freedom, uh, or we had this Fortnite for Freedom campaign in the Catholic Church around uh, different issues that Christians have been concerned about uh, in terms of practicing their faith in public life. But, you know, when Muslims have been unable, in some cases, to go to their houses of worship and pray safely, or are targeted by the government in these other sorts of ways, like that's also a religious freedom issue. And so um, I am trying to kind of widen the scope a little bit and uh, help us to 
to recognize that, you know, when one group is targeted because of their religion, that's something that we all should be concerned about. Yeah. So I want to go into a little bit how this plays out in in the Catholic Church specifically. So so back in March, this parody Twitter account that parodies the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops asked its followers, um, in one tweet, tell us about a time you felt least at home in the Catholic Church. And in your response, you said, um, when I'm called a heretic and worse for my work promoting Muslim Christian understanding, that deeply hurts when I see the way some Catholics, including some in the hierarchy, demonize Muslims it's hard to feel at home. Uh, so can you unpack that a bit for us? What have you witnessed um, within the Catholic Church in terms of anti-Muslim bias? What, how does that play out? Yeah, so I have a chapter in the book where I look at contemporary manifestations of Islamophobia in Christian communities, and I focus a lot on issues in the Catholic Church. And um, I tell some stories about priests who have said things from the pulpit that are you know, anti-Muslim or that are casting this kind of fear and suspicion on the Muslim community. I talk about conversations I've had with priests and lay people. I think one of the particular problems is the way that some uh, of the anti-Muslim voices who operate on the national scene, like who have been behind some of the uh, anti-Muslim campaigns that that listeners might remember, like the so-called ground zero mosque controversy, or um, there was this fervor several years ago about, oh, Muslims want to institute Sharia law in America. And there were all these um, kind of public campaigns to ban Sharia, which was sort of like a solution in search of a problem. Like this, this was a completely manufactured sort of problem. People who are uh, advocating for these uh, things in the in the national discourse um, were having an impact in Catholic circles as well. And I, I did some research at my, or my old job about the ways that anti-Muslim ideas were being disseminated in Catholic circles that to me was really is really concerning because our faith tradition and you know not just coming out of Vatican II but uh you know at the Second Vatican Council in Nostra Aetate the first thing that's said about Muslims which is the first time that the church has ever spoken about Muslims in this way is the church holds Muslims in high regard period or the church is you know called to treat Muslims with respect to put it another way and when in our Catholic circles, the default attitude towards Muslims or the way Muslims being are being portrayed is one of, a way of suspicion and fear mongering and casting them as a threat and another. That's not in line with what we're called to, and um, so so that's a real problem. You know, I think also it's there. I talk in the book uh, at the beginning about this anti-Muslim chain email message that was sent around my Catholic community when I was uh, when I was younger and. Uh, sort of the disconnect that it illustrated to me, this anti-Muslim message was sent around by good, faithful, loving Catholics who didn't realize that this message that they were sending around was wrong. And I think that we, you know, we so often have a warped sense of who Muslims are, and we have a real opportunity, I think, when we um, when we work to combat religious discrimination that's not directed towards our faith community of actually living out our calling as Christians better, to to love others, to welcome others, and to be hospitable. You know, I am, uh, I think chain emails are evil in their own regard. And so when there's like racism lumped on top of it, it's even worse. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, you, you, you write about like, it, it's not enough to just sort of like try to like educate people, like hit people over the head with like Islam 101 in educating yeah. them. Yeah about some of the things that come up in like this chain email that you um, mm -hmm. 
you you mentioned. But what if what's like a a, a Catholic or a Christian person supposed to do when they encounter just some like blatantly like obviously Islamophobic sentiments that they might be hearing mm-hmm. um, from a family member or a friend or a, a priest, for example? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it the, the easy answer is to say it, it can be kind of a case by case basis, but, um, and you have to kind of read the room and figure out, you know, what, what's going to be um, most effective. But the, the starting point I think is to just disrupt that comment or not let it slide by. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to change the mind of the person that you're talking to. You know, so I have definitely gone into conversations thinking, oh, I need to do what I can so that this person leaves this conversation seeing things the way that I do, that like, you know, Islamophobia is wrong. But what I've realized is like, that's not always super realistic. But what I can do is say, you know, can you ask someone, can you clarify what you mean by that? Like, I don't see it that way. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about why you think that? Because sometimes in working at, when people are asked to elaborate on their views, we we come to realize our own stereotypes. We come to realize that they're stereotypes, you know. And I think another thing that we can do, and this is something that I've done a lot, is talking about our own experiences of uh, coming to grips with our the stereotypes that we have about people who are different. I tell some kind of uncomfortable stories in the book about when I've been confronted like with my own stereotypes, like moments where I've realized, ooh, I shouldn't have thought that way about Muslims. Can you share an example of that? Yeah. So I, I tell a story, actually, I tell this one in my first book, but um, I was living in the country of Jordan and there was a man who, I, I was like doing my Arabic homework at my host family's house. And there was a man in the street who was yelling through a megaphone very loudly, emphatically, quickly. And this was during the period of the um, like the Arab Spring, like when there were lots of protests going on throughout the Middle East. And I assumed this is someone who was advocating for some kind of like violent religious revolution. And I, it was scary to me. I thought, you know, this person is trying to cause harm or cause trouble. And so um, I asked my host mom, I said, who is that guy? And what is he saying? Thinking that she was going to validate what I'd said. And she said, oh, that's a guy just selling fruits and vegetables out of the back of his pickup truck. Like he was yelling about bananas and tomatoes and stuff. My Arabic at the time, like for, for that diet, like that dialect of Arabic was not good enough to have picked up on that at the time. And when she said that, just like, I felt just like bowled over, like, oh, wow. Like I should, I can't, I can't believe I assumed I, I my mind immediately just went to, to something negative, but it, it, it's not surprising because I had grown up in a context where the only time I had ever heard someone yelling in Arabic, like on the news, was in a war zone or something. So it's it, it was no surprise that I had that kind of reaction. But what it goes to show, I think, is that even those of us who have really good intentions, and I think you know every 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 human being, you know, by and large, I think has good intentions, and even despite our good intentions, sometimes um, we can still hold on to biases or these like negative visceral reactions towards people who are different that, you know, aren't something that we like, we're not proud of them. But I think in acknowledging them, that's the first step to to do something and to, to make a change. Yeah, I'm really glad you shared that. Because um, I think for a lot of people of my generation, you know, we maybe never heard of Islam or knew a Muslim before 
um, 9-11. I was, you know, 11 years old when that happened and I remember it well and I remember the aftermath. So, you know, I think a lot of people were at an impressionable age. Um, they were going through this national trauma and that's, and that's where they were introduced to this religion and, you know, maybe a, a distorted version of Islam. So yeah, so like it, we might hold these views in a subconscious or pre-rational way that we might we might not notice until we're in a situation like what you described. So what would what would you say to those people who like who maybe acknowledge that that's maybe part of their experience and want to move past it? I mean, I think just acknowledging that and being aware of that is really important and then taking tangible steps to maybe get to know Muslims or to to do even small acts of of activism or um educating other people. Um, I talk in, in the book about a lot, you know, so many different ways that we can kind of express our solidarity with Muslims, both in the face of Islamophobia and then just kind of like on a human level. I think Catholics already have been super involved in welcoming uh, predominantly Muslim refugees to the United States. And I mean, one of the things that's been really cool for me to watch in, in the D.C. area is the way that Catholic groups have really been at the forefront of advocating for uh, the resettlement of refugees who've been predominantly Muslim um, to the United States and saying, you know, it's not, it's not enough for us to just advocate for the resettlement and the safety of our own religious fold, but anyone who is fleeing danger and persecution is someone who we need to be concerned about and take care of. You know, to go back to to relationships, I think that's really important, and also learning about. Islam from Muslims themselves. One of the issues that I've noticed in Catholic circles is that a lot of Catholics will read books about Islam that are not by Muslims. It'll be by people who maybe are Catholic or from a different faith tradition or of no religion who sometimes set up a kind of an us versus them dichotomy in this presentation of our religion and the, uh, the presentation of Islam. And I think it's really important to learn about Islam from Muslims themselves, um, because I think there are a lot of circumstances where we might have a, a stated theological difference, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like Muslims are like living their lives in a bad way morally because they articulate their reasons for doing things in a different way. Like, so I'll, I'll just give one kind of example. A lot of times I'll hear Catholics say, oh, well, Muslims don't have um, the doctrine of the incarnation or this sense of God is like, you know, in human flesh that, that we as Christians do. And so, um, they'll take it to this weird next step of saying, oh, well then Muslims don't have a concept of like human dignity or like Muslims don't have a sense of God as, as, as a personal God. And then they'll use that to kind of cast suspicion on Muslims and, and to feed into some of these like negative ways of, and dangerous ways really of thinking about Muslims. And so I think what's really cool is when we can learn about Islam from Muslims themselves, a lot of those kind of more simplistic and I think self-serving ways of thinking about the religious other can fall away. Now, you write it, the book about, um, I don't know, the media is like generally focused on um, when they're portraying Muslims, like either places of war warfare or even at best, like like reconciliation between groups that are are, are Christian and Muslim. Um, but you you give a number of examples of like situations that are often overlooked, which is of Christians and Muslims living in harmony, um, as they've done for that like hundreds of years. Um, could you share maybe just a, 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 an example or two of that? Yeah, there's so many I could choose from. Um, I, I think one that um, a lot of Catholics 
uh, like to learn about is the encounter between Francis and the Sultan. I mean, that maybe isn't the the best example to go to your point because it, that's the meeting between St. Francis and this Muslim Sultan was in the midst of the Crusades. So it still is sort of this kind of like exception story of like people um, trying to build bridges and be peacemakers. But I think in terms of like ordinary living, I mean, I have experienced it myself, like being a college student at a Catholic university and having Muslim friends. And I, in college, I lived in a Muslim living learning community, which was a really pot. And it's, I mean, I think it's just cool that Georgetown even offers that to Muslim students, basically like a set of apartments where you can live with people who have a similar sense of like what they value and how they want to spend their time. And, you know, I was obviously a Catholic girl living with Muslim students and some other Christians who wanted to live there too. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was just like, I mean, your typical college experience where you're procrastinating on your homework, watch, you know, by watching YouTube videos or like playing intramural volleyball and doing community service together, those sorts of things. And I also got to see that uh, in the country of Jordan when I lived there. You know, I, I, I loved especially talking to the kind of like gran my grandparents' generation who lived there because they would, I think in, in more recent years, like people have kind of broken down across religious lines more. But like if you go back three generations, people would say like, we didn't really know or pay attention to who was Christian or Muslim. Like we all dressed the same you know, people would go pray on Fridays or people would go pray on Sundays. But like whenever there was a holiday, we would get together and swap presents and food and everything. And um, yeah, I mean, those stories don't get written about in the history books. They're not things that are getting covered in the media very often, but um, they're they're real and they uh, are just really nourishing to to one's faith life, both, you know, on the Christian side and on the Muslim side. You know, recently we've, um, you know, going back to what the media highlights, we've seen uh, the coverage of the latest conflict in Israel and Palestine. Um, and I'm wondering what you've seen in that coverage as as it relates to what information Americans receive about Muslims and how they're portrayed in a conflict like that. Yeah, I think there's often, particularly in the U.S. media, this um, sort of conflation between Palestinians and Islam and then sort of like this reduction of Islam to like to violence, basically. And I think that kind of stereotype of Muslim violence really colors how uh, people here in the U.S. Um, view what's going on. And I think it's easy, you know, for us to hear things like, you know, uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip is shooting off rockets. And that's like, oh, yeah, there's Muslims again being violent. And then we just kind of tune out the rest. You know, I think that can be kind of the, the stereotypes can be a crutch in our ability to analyze and to actually hear what's going on in the news. What I think complicates that picture is the existence of Palestinian Christians. Um, I like in my experience, like a lot of Catholics and a lot of Christians in general just have no idea that like our fellow Christians are also living in the Holy Land as people indigenous to the region, not as like people that have moved there from Europe or wherever. Well, that gets back to your earlier point about Islamophobia have, like affecting more people than Muslims. Yeah. And it's such like a frustrating, yes. it's so true, but such a frustrating like that it is an entry point for some people because it's like, oh, like there are Christians actually being affected by this situation. Mm -hmm. Too, and you almost want to like say like that shouldn't matter. Like that, right. in a certain sense, that shouldn't matter. Um, and you know, one of the points you have in the book is that like actually like confronting Islamophobia should be like a Christian calling. It's not just something mm -hmm. that like I don't know we do because we're we're nice people, but like there's right. something in our faith that compels us to 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 fight that. Yeah, and that's why I um in one of the later chapters in the book 
focus on Catholic social teaching because I think that we have this impetus in our faith tradition to care about and try to protect the life and dignity of of anyone, not just people in our own faith community. And I think Catholic social teaching speaks really powerfully to that. And, you know, one of the things that I hope readers will be able to do is to also help remind our fellow Christians that like we have this mandate from our faith tradition. It's not something like a concern about Islamophobia isn't something that like we tack on to our faith, but it like, I think it grows organically from it because we do have this mandate to care about the rights and dignity of everybody. You mentioned earlier how how the documents of Vatican II kind of revolutionized uh, the way that the Catholic Mm -hmm. Church uh, spoke about Islam. I'm wondering if you've seen anything under the papacy of Pope Francis that's had a, a similar like mm-hmm. groundbreaking effect on Muslim Christian relations. I feel like every year there's something new that Francis does that like, oh, this is the thing that really revolutionized it. I mean, he, at the beginning of his pontificate, he said that dialogue with Muslims was going to be a big priority. Um, and that wasn't really covered at the time to my knowledge, but it's something that he has, he's not let us down on. Um, he's, I mean, every single year, I feel like there's a new major trip that he has done to a Muslim majority country or this document on human fraternity that he signed with, with a Muslim leader. I think for me, I mean, I, I could choose a lot of things, but I think for me, one of the cool things that Francis has done is shown how our, like he, in, in, uh, in Fratelli Tutti, he talks about how he was inspired to write this encyclical because of his Muslim colleague, like because of the grand Imam of Al-Azhar, who he wrote this, this um, other document with, and that it was this relationship and kind of the, the impetus from this dialogue he had with Muslims that led him to want to write for Tutti. Also in Laudato Si, there's a point where he quotes from a Muslim mystic in the document to make a point, like a point that he wants to make as a Catholic. And I think it, it goes to show kind of the like symbiotic relationship or the the impact that our communities have on each other that like we can be impacted in a positive way by another faith tradition and actually that helps us to be ourselves even better like that we're not totally walled off from this other community but that our relationship with the other can actually help us to live out our catholicism in a reinvigorated kind of way what are some things that you've learned, and I know you've written literally a book about this, from from Muslims in your life that have made you a better Catholic? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I can start with some of the, like, I guess, spiritual, like the spiritual influence that that Muslims have had on me. I think the the dedication to prayer that I saw among Muslim friends of mine in college was really impactful, realizing that they made time for God in the midst of their daily life. And I could see how that shaped the rest of their lives, that they were kinder and calmer and more generous and had better perspective on life because they made time for God. I also, and I think especially in recent years, have really admired my Muslim friends' dedication to like working for social justice or working to combat different issues. I mean, whether it's related to like religious discrimination, but lots of other, lots of other issues. And just to see that they find that their faith tradition and their relationship with God really compels them to work for the common good, to work for the betterment of humanity and to not compromise on that and to not back down when things get hard. Um, One of the things that I draw attention to in the book is, you know, sometimes Muslims have been targeted because 
they they advocate for what's right or they are pushing for social justice and that makes them kind of a like a threat to the status quo because if the status quo is unjust and people are pushing for justice like you get backlash for that and so that's something that i also really admire and am trying to also adopt in my own you know my own life i think the last thing i'll say is i have really felt so buoyed by the friendships that i've had with muslims in the sense that I know that they pray for me and also they ask me for my prayers too. Um, there's this sort of like spiritual solidarity that that we have where we know that even though we may believe differently or profess different things or even have our doubts at times about uh, our faith, that um, we see that the other person is is trying to please God or is trying to to live right and to know that we can do that side by side and to just have that kind of friendship is really meaningful to me. Jordan, thank you for your work. It's such it's such a great service and gift to to the to our listeners and to the entire church. Um, we do have one final question for you. You probably know what's coming. Uh, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? So the first time I was on, I, I canonized a, a Muslim individual who I write about in my first book. And um, this time I want to canonize um, my late grandfather, Bob Denary, who, you know, never made any major headlines. Um, he was a high school biology teacher and a boys basketball coach. And um, he was also my confirmation sponsor. I, I think it's kind of rare for kids to like pick, you know, their grandparent for confirmation sponsor, but he was someone, he, he was the epitome of a faithful Catholic who really loved God and that shone through in his relationships with people. And I, I just felt so loved by him. And I know that everyone who met him felt loved by him just by his presence and his ability to really see the people that were in front of him. So, um, yeah, I'd like to canonize Bio Bob. Bio Bob. Because <laughs> he was uh, fondly Oh, known. I love that. Bio love Bob. Bio, yeah, as biology teacher, Bio Bob. Bio yeah. Bob. Bio Basketball Bob, even, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, what, what, Jordan, thanks again. Um, one more time, the book is Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. We will link to it in our show notes, and everyone should pick up a copy. Thank you so much, and Thanks, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. When I saw you standing there Under the stars I knew it wouldn't be the last time Scrolling through the memories Of when we began Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. 
What do you have, Zach? So I've got a consolation this week, and um, it actually comes from a bachelor party that I was just, I just got <laughs> back from attending. Um, and probably not what you're expecting, but at this bachelor party I was on, there was a, a, a round of faith sharing. It was with some college friends who I was in a, you know, faith community with when I was in college. Um, mm-hmm. And... I don't know. It's the first time, you know, other than this show and like, which, you know, we're in our routine and things are happening, um, that this whole pandemic, I've just been so like kind of worried about what's been going on in my own prayer life. Wondering if, you know, is God there? Is he talking? Am Mm -hmm. I doing enough? Am I there? I don't know. I just very inward focused in my own spirituality and hearing other people talk about the, the movements of their own lives and where God's been working, um, just reminded me that like, Oh, right. Like, Mm God has been working in in the church too, right? In these people in the church and all of us and took a lot of pressure off of me in my life, I would say, in a way that was useful. Um, and it reminded myself that I am part of this community and that there is, mm-hmm. um, God is in relationship with the people that I am in relationship with. <laughs> and so that was, my, uh, that was my bachelor party consolation this week. Interesting enough, I have a consolation that's kind of similar in a not quite a bachelor party, but a, an all male setting. I uh, was invited to speak to the older men's group at at our parish this uh, a couple weeks ago, and I didn't know quite what to expect. I'm, you know, I'm used to talking about faith with you know the Jesuit priests we work with or with you. But this was kind of like a demographic that I'm like less familiar with in this kind of setting. Um, we don't, I don't personally hear a lot about kind of like the inner faith lives of just, you know, you know, older or middle-aged men who are, you know, working and have families. And it's just kind of like a, you know, a blocked off mystery to me what their faith life is like. And I had the opportunity to in, engage in faith sharing with them too, um, hear about, you know, times in their lives where they felt alienated from the church, times that they felt like they were really coming into their faith. And it was just like a really, I felt it was a very like privileged place to be in, privileged in the sense that, you know, the, this group of people that I'm less you know, I spend less time with were being really open and vulnerable to me. And very and similar to what you were saying about seeing that that God was was still working in the church. I I got to see the way God was working in in the lives of these of these men um in a new way and in some ways that, you know, seemed kind of different than my experience of faith, but also also places of common ground. So I felt very lucky to to be a part of that um and to see to see the different way that that God is working through the people in our parish so that was my consolation yeah hopefully there's a lot more of that as the world is opening up we're just able to like see that you know god has not been idle in other people's lives and i imagine there will be a lot more of that all right get us out of here jesuitical is produced by maggie van dorn our editor is kevin christopher robles Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup, who turned 40 this week. Happy Happy birthday! (laughs) Happy birthday, Father Sundrup! You're no longer uh, young. I don't know if you're hip, and you're certainly not lay, So, um, but we're happy to have you as part of this podcast. (laughs) You can follow us on Twitter, at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.
Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.